Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Earlier this month brought a bit of a shock to the Missouri political world. U.S. Representative Blaine Luke DeMeyer announced he wouldn't run for re-election. The Republican from St. Elizabeth has been a fixture on the state's political scene since the late 1990s. He was first a state lawmaker, then he was state tourism director, and he became a member of Congress in 2009. And his election to that post was a wild one. Notably, it was during the financial crisis, and Luke DeMeyer has always been focused on issues affecting the banking and financial services industry. That 2008 primary field also featured brutal attacks and gaffes, including two candidates saying that their favorite founding fathers were Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. But I digress. While Luke DeMeyer has made no secret of his disgust with GOP infighting over the past year, he told me that the perennial dysfunction is not the reason he's stepping aside. I'm going to be 72 years old in May. And, um, you know, my health is good. And so people ask me about, you know, if my health is bad, the reason I'm retiring, I say, no, my health is good. That's why I'm retiring, because I can enjoy retirement. Um, you know, at, at 72, you think about life a little bit differently. And if I would be for service chair, which, you know, quite frankly, everything was, the stars were lining up for that to take place. So not that we can get it all in the in the bag or anything, but I, I was no doubt the leading candidate. The political regs around here, they believe that that was going to happen as well. So I don't know. I mean, we had a good shot, let's put it that way. But that's not what drives me. Um, I think um, being a father, grandfather, a husband, those are the most important jobs I'll ever have. That's why I got into politics later in life. Um, and at this point, at 72, uh, it just, the time was right for me to step aside. Um, <clears throat> you know, my mother, uh, uh, and there was Parkinson's disease on my on my mother's side, and we wound up uh, her going to a nursing home when she was 77, and my grandfather died um, her dad died when he was 73, I believe. So, you know, you begin to think about life a little differently once you cross that 70 barrier. And uh, it just seemed like it was the right time to step aside and finish this year strong and be able to enjoy the kids and grandkids uh, for whatever, whether it's two years or 20 years left, who knows. But we, we had talked before, I think it was a month or two ago, about like I, when we, during the speaker melodrama, and I could tell that you were – outwardly frustrated by what's going on. Now, I've seen other interviews, and you've said that that didn't play a role in your decision, but I, I can't imagine that, that the last year or two has been particularly enjoyable with all the turmoil in the GOP caucus. Is that fair to say, or have you been having just a great time voting on 700 different speakers over the last year? <laughs> That's our process, Jason, and I've never... You know, I've served in Missouri in the House, and I've served in D.C. here in the House. And, you know, the Founding Fathers didn't design a, an easy process. It's a messy process, very inefficient, very ineffective. And I knew that going in. And so what you're seeing now play out on C-SPAN and on social media is what's been going on for years. Maybe not quite at this level, but 
uh, it's been going on like this all along. I mean, I I can't remember some of the, some of the debates we had early on when I got here. I mean, I can remember when Tom Delay was was uh, was was around and Dennis Hastert and the the uh, post office scandal. And I remember whenever Boehner tried to unseat um, you know uh, Newt Gingrich. I mean, those are all things that happened in the House here as well. So to think that there's never been any turmoil, that everything is hunky dory all the time just doesn't depict what really goes on here. This is a, the house is a, is a, is a melting pot of, of people from all over the country who come in with all sorts of ideas and, and different groups of people uh, to represent. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it hasn't been as much fun probably, but I, you know, this job wasn't supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a job. You're supposed to be able to help people and direct policy. And so, um, I, we have some folks right now that don't like to, to work hard and direct policy. All they want to do is throw rocks. And so they're not really Republicans, by the way, but um, that's another issue for another day. But no, I, 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 you know, to walk away from what I had set up, the, the financial services chairmanship, I've got probably the best staff I've ever had. I've got uh, my campaign account is flush with cash. I mean, I could run a campaign and not have to raise another dollar, um, but I'm walking away from all that. Because uh, I think it's it's in my best interest for my own personal health and and, and enjoyment of my retirement years to be able to, to do that. I mean, I really, you know, everybody thinks it's it's what goes on around here, but that's been going on for a long time, and we've been put up that for 16 years. So to put up with another two or three terms is not going to be a big deal. It is easy to memory hole about how contentious Congress was, like during the Barack Obama years. So I definitely see your point there, but it does seem like. Trump's emergence onto the scene did prompt a lot of Republicans to kind of play to some of his characteristics, like fighting and trying to go against the establishment and being very loud and trying to get attention. So I know that Trump isn't just solely responsible for that, but do you think that his emergence played a role in the type of Republicans that were being elected to your caucus? I think it, it stems more from the actions of Obama and Biden from what they did to our country and are doing to our country today uh, that is frustrating people. You know, Jason, the average family makes 50-some thousand dollars a year, 50-60,000 dollars a year, and their life, just to pay the same bills they paid two years ago, it takes $1,000 more per month. They, they didn't get a pay raise of $1,000 a month in the last two years. So they've fallen behind, and people are ticked off about that. They're concerned about that. You know, they, the crime that's rampant in this country, this defund the police nonsense, people are now dying in the streets. Their, their, their communities are being destroyed by people who no longer uh, are willing to adhere to the law. And we have the judges in, in, our, in our law enforcement, uh, in some uh, cases, are not willing to enforce the law. We have anarchy in our streets. We have a border that's no longer a border. 300,000 people came across the border in December? Are you kidding me? That's the largest number in history. Other than somebody like the Mexicans, I guess, years ago when they invaded our country, they didn't have 300,000 people doing it then. Those are the things that, you know, the, the, the rules and regulations. The Biden, the Biden administration has, in the last three years, promulgated more than $400 billion worth of cost to, for, for businesses to implement the rules and regulations that they've set out the last three years. Those are things that are aggravating people. Those are things that are causing people to, 
to raise up and, and question their government and be willing to push back. I mean, I have people all the time come up to me and say, and they say enough is enough. I used to be a Democrat, or I used to vote Democrat, or I used to be a liberal. I said, no more. We can't afford this. We, we've got to get our country back. They want safe neighborhoods. They want good schools. They want their, their this inflation to go away. They want the interest rates to come down so they can buy a house. And they want this fentanyl to stop coming across a border that is that is no border. We don't have a sovereign country if you don't have a border. It's those things, Jason, that are causing people to to rise up. Trump just happened to be the guy that was that they picked out of the, out of the group last time to lead the way. Um, and this time you've got some more people that are, I think, good people that I think could do just as good a job. He is he's a proven commodity from the standpoint of Republicans are concerned, and he's probably going to win the primary. But it's not him who's instigating this. It's the, it's the reaction to the, to the type of administrations that Obama and Biden have put together that are oppressive to our people and to this country and then have led to this unstable world we're living in with what's going on in Ukraine, with China and Taiwan, with Hamas and Hezbollah and Israel. My gosh. It's horrible. And you've got the cartels taking over now 40% of Mexico. Jason, it's, <laughs> we've got problems. And the people recognize this. And it's, they're not necessarily Republicans. They're Americans. Yeah. They want this country back. That's what's going on. It's not, it's not an allegiance to Trump. He just happens to be the guy that we're going to support to, to carry the spear for him to, to, to lead the way. But it's not him. It's it's the reaction to what's been going on with these other two administrations. This is what's going on. Let's just take Trump out of the equation. Let's just talk about the voters and their expectations. It does seem that like one of the downsides of this for people like you are people like Congressman Smith or Congresswoman Wagner or Congressman Graves is when you actually go to do work in Congress that involves like difficult problems and complexity and making difficult decisions and actually doing work rather than just like clout for social media. Well, sometimes you do that work and you're called a rhino or you're called, you know, a member of the establishment or something like that. Like it it doesn't seem like that is a sustainable thing, especially when you just listed a lot of the problems we have in the country that requires definitive congressional action. So that's more of a statement than a question. But I guess my question is, if that dynamic continues, are we going to continue to have the dysfunction we have in D.C. and be unable to deal with some of the serious problems you just mentioned? Well, our majority in the House is so narrow that it allows for a couple of of guys who are really they're libertarians, not really Republicans either. They're they're rhinos themselves. Um, because they're not, they're, they're libertarians. They're not. They're all about themselves. They're, they they want to tear it down. They haven't got a plan B to build it back up. Uh, but yeah, that that's, that allows them to have influence in this situation. For instance, to allow four percent of the people to kick Kevin McCarthy out of speaker, that's inconscionable. That's not democracy. That's anarchy. That's allowing them a small, small majority of so-called elitists to be able to to rule over the other ninety-six percent of us. That's nonsense. But that's what happened. So it's not. I think the American people, as I talk to them in my district, and I come home every weekend, and I spent the whole Christmas vacation around home and around uh, doing some traveling around the district, um, they're beginning to see that these people are all about throwing rocks, not about solving problems, and they're not happy about it. Um, they're, they're starting to look at, at them as more of part of the problem than they are as the solution. So while Trump came in, 
and actually solve problems. These guys are not. They're just they're just adding to the to the heap of problems that we have by not being willing to work on them in a constructive way. This is not the way Trump operates. I mean, I, I served in four years under Trump in the, uh, under the Trump administration. He came in and he tried to solve problems. He had ideas that were different, yes, and he implemented things that were not necessarily in what the Democrats and the liberals wanted. But he did it in, in, in a way that actually solved problems. And 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 these guys don't want to do that. It's their they were their way of the highway. And Trump was somebody who actually sat down and tried to work through it and compromise from time to time on issues to try and get something done. And these guys will never do that. So to, to correlate them with Trump is, is just, it doesn't work in my book. I want to actually talk about your work on the Financial Services Committee, because it seems like a a committee that like the layperson may not know about, but my understanding is is an extraordinarily important committee that does a lot of really important things. Well, in Congress here, it's one of the four what we call A committees, one of the big, most important committees. Um, uh, and the committee has tremendous jurisdiction. It oversees the SEC, oversees HUD, oversees all of the banking issues, all of the insurance issues. It oversees... Um, uh, a lot of the uh, regulators, the Federal Reserve, the Comptroller of the Currency, the CFPB, uh, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, also is instrumental with regards to policy, with regards to international financial institutions such as the IMF, the World Bank. That's actually my subcommittee uh, right now that I'm chairman of. And so it's very, very in- engaged in almost every financial services aspect. And as a result, that's a huge uh, jurisdiction purview that they, they have. Uh, when you think of the entire Security Exchange Commission, or they see over you know the stock exchange and all the investment portfolios of all the asset managers of the country, HUD, which in, is overall the housing, and the banking institutions which and credit unions, which um, are over, you know, that they're how people interact on a daily basis with financial institutions. Insurance companies, uh, we do everything except health insurance there. So all your property casualty, liability, all that stuff, including flood insurance. And then you have um, um, you know, all your regulators. You know, I, I deal with the regulators a lot, Federal Reserve, Comptroller of Currency, CFPB. Um, you know, that, that is, that's a huge jurisdiction. And because of all that jurisdiction and, and, and the impact that all those industries have on our economy, you know, they have actually, you know, it's how you invest your money. It's how you get loans. It's how you're able to insure your property. It's how you can actually can go buy a house and, 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 and be a homeowner. Um, and all of the regulators that oversee all that—that's that's a pretty big deal. Um, so yeah, I'm. It was a. It, it's a very very important committee, and it's kind of under the radar because it, you know, who who cares about, you know, yeah, SEC rules and regulations and leverage ratio and banking and, you know, we got, um, you know, the uh, some some as a result of Dodd Frank, we got a whole bunch of rules and regulations promulgated already, still that are you know, being promulgated today. So it, it's kind of. Um, a snoozer for a lot of folks. They don't really want to get involved in that, but the importance of it to be able to have access to credit and to cheap credit that you can afford, you know, having an affordable home uh, loan is very important for people to be able to have access to homes. So it's, it's really important, the work that they do to be able to keep the rules and regulations down so that small businesses have access to credit and homeowners have access to credit, that investors have safe and sound investments to invest in and don't be taken advantage of by shysters and fly-by-nighters for the SEC. And so um, you got to watch the regulators because in this environment, the regulators have become de facto legislators because they 
try to expand their authority. So it's constantly trying to rein those folks in. So it, it's a pretty pretty big job and pretty pretty widespread um, committee. Well, here's an example, like a real-world Missouri example, where I think your committee matters and where I think even after you you retire, they're going to have to do something. Like, as you know, Missouri legalized marijuana for adult use. Like, there's no access to banking just because marijuana is, is illegal, um, and that potentially could make it very difficult to, say, open a dispensary or open a cultivation center because you have to come in with lo- literally large piles of, of liquid cash rather than being able to get loans from a bank. Do you think, especially because you're seeing states like Missouri legalize it for adult use, it's kind of only a matter of time before Congress really needs to deal with this issue in a definitive way to make sure that what I described isn't the case going forward, where it's a very like cash uh heavy industry, so to speak. No, your depiction of it is correct in that technically uh, marijuana is still a Schedule One drug. And as a result, it's a felony when you engage in the um, in an activity to grow it or sell it or manufacture it. I mean, it's still a you know, Class One scheduled drug. Um, the, the problem is that you have these various states who have gone out here <clears throat> and even with statewide referendums, approved the use of marijuana, uh, the sale of it, and as a result, um, everybody thinks it's okay. Well, federal law trumps state law, and technically it still is a federal felony crime to engage in this activity. Now, what's happened is the attorney general uh, has sort of turned a blind eye to this and said, well, you know, we're, we'll, we'll, let her, we'll let the everything's keep going keep going here uh in the meantime uh let's work on it trying to figure out if we can get this to a point where it will actually be legal and uh people can actually in, indulge in a safe way of, of being involved in this business um so yeah there's been a bill there's a safe banking act that made it out of the house with my choke point bill on it to be able to get it through the house that went to the senate last year and so the Senate has resurrected that bill. It called it now it was a safe act. Now they call it the Safer Act, <clears throat> and they're trying to strip my bill off of it. And so my choke point language, which protects businesses from uh, regulators being able to impose their own bias and threaten business uh, bankers for uh, being involved with uh, certain lines of business that the regulators don't like. Not that they're doing something illegal; they just don't like it. So. Um, that's kind of the scenario of where we're at. Uh, so the, the Senate is trying to work on the bill. I'm working with them to clean up the language to be able to allow it to happen. But I'm going to tell you, I haven't talked to an attorney yet that says that this is going to solve the problem because what's going to happen is you're going to wind up, if they pass this bill, you're going to have a federal law in direct conflict with another federal law. And it's going to go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to come back and say, you know what, guys? At some point, you guys got to get this right. So go back and do this over. Yeah, I mean, uh, not to interrupt, but like, but, but, but isn't this, uh, sorry, sorry, Congress, not to interrupt, but isn't the answer here just for Congress to legalize marijuana and just get away from that, 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 that conflict? It seems like that's the easy solution here, but I guess that's not really an easy solution because I guess a lot of your colleagues are not comfortable with that, even though a lot of states have already done that. Well, that's correct. Uh, we problem, and there have been efforts to try and deschedule it, and when that happens, 
the bill gets Christmas treat and where they had a whole bunch of stuff to it and it never goes anywhere because what happens is uh, the Democrats want to do one thing and Republicans want to do another thing and as a result it never goes anywhere. So yes, uh, we can fix that. The other way is for um, the scientific community to be able to give us some research that shows how to better structure a bill that would allow for, for instance, let's say you want to have it just for medicinal purposes and be able to have um, certain level of THCs and certain level of other chemicals in there that would be something that could be prescribed by a doctor. That research has not been completed yet. It's been started now, finally, but it has not been completed. So therefore, we don't have an FDA-approved research paper that shows how we can structure a bill to allow the safe usage of it for medicinal purposes. So technically, again, it's still a federal federal crime to to mess with this stuff, uh, even though most people, most you know, even if you get caught with it today, most people look the other way. Most law enforcement agents look the other way, and our attorney general will not do anything. Doesn't mean that's still not there on the books, and you can get somebody out there that could be kind of froggy and actually prosecute somebody sometime with this. So it needs to be resolved. You're right. One way is legislatively, which is very difficult, uh, but it could be done. But I think the best way to go about it is to get the scientific evidence that shows what we need to be doing, how difficult uh, or how it could be could be legalized on the medicinal side, and start from there. If you could do that, I think that would be a, a go a long way toward being able to solve part of our problem here. So one of the observations I made is when you announced your retirement, there are some like eerie parallels to what happened in 2008. I mean, Matt Blunt announces he's not running again. Then Kenny Holshoff decides to run for governor and opens up a primary, which you win, and then a general election, you win. Okay, so it's not exactly the same. Whoever wins the primary in August is probably going to be your successor because it's a very Republican district. But, like, I I guess my question is, knowing how um, feisty and at times nasty the 2008 race was, and we talked about that in 2014, are third district residents like in for just a mud bath in August, or is it possible you can have a competitive primary without the candidates who run to replace you just trying to rhetorically massacre each other, basically? Well, I, you're going to have to ask them. I can't speak for their campaigns. I know, but, but I you have that... such moral authority to to make sure that they behave, Congressman. But no, I'm I'm just kidding. But 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 continue with your your answer. <laughs> You give me way more credit than what I'm, I'm do here. I, I, I can't control what they say in their campaigns. I can give them suggestions. Almost all of them have called me and asked for my advice and my counsel on whether they should uh, run, what, the, what it's like to be a congressman, what it takes campaign-wise to make it work, what kind of life you have for your family, all of those things. So, yeah, I mean, I've talked to a lot of these guys. And so, um, but there's a, you know, the campaigning in today's world is, especially when you have multiple candidates, like what's going to happen here, to get yourself above the fray, you've got to do something or say something that's going to be put you, that marks you as somebody different, somebody that is going to, you know, step out in front of the rest of the candidates. And how do you do that? That's the good question. And sometimes people resort to throwing rocks at somebody else or saying things that are, you know, extraneously, um, outlandish to be able to, to make the point. So I don't know whether they're going to do that or not. I would hope not, but 
the way campaigns are today, as you sort of prefaced your remarks by, uh, yeah, I would not, I would not think that it would not happen. Um, you, know, you want to frame your opponent sometimes in a way that uh, actually, you know, you can you can frame them because they're going to they're going to probably misrepresent who they really are. They're going to try to promote themselves as a, the solution to everything. They're the, the perfect candidate, and you know you're going to try and make sure that people realize they're not the perfect candidate. So, yeah, I, it I would it would not surprise me that they would they would denigrate into some mudslinging of some kind. My last question for you is this. I actually put out a call on social media about like, what are some of the issues that third district residents want your successor to deal with? And I've got varying response. Some people said healthcare. Some people said like they want your successor to be funding Ukraine and Israel. There were a couple of people who were salty about Boone County being split in half, which I, I don't want to get into a redistricting rabbit hole discussion here. But I'm prefacing this because I want to ask you, what do you think the big issues for your successor specifically to help the third district are going to be in the coming years? Because we can talk about kind of like personality conflicts and leadership intrigue, but ultimately Missouri congressional districts have real problems that need to be solved. So I guess in my closing question, I'd like you to just maybe provide some insight to your successor about some of the things that maybe they should focus on after they get elected? From a 30,000-foot view, it's about constituents' uh, concerns about their needs, about whether they're health care, whether education, whether they're um, uh, taxes, small businesses. We have lots and lots of small businesses, and I throw farmers in the small business category there as well, that have rules and regulations that are trying to run them out of business. You have my district has got almost over half the Missouri River has run across the middle of the state there, and I've got a little bit left of the uh, Mississippi. I used to have half of it as it went from St. Louis to, to Iowa. So river issues are a really big deal, especially when you have the Lake of the Ozarks in there. Uh, it's a unique district from the standpoint I've got uh, the state capital in there besides the Lake of the Ozarks, the number one mid vacation destination in the, in the Midwest. I got the University of Missouri in my district. I've got uh, several other uh, universities, Lindenwood and William Woods, and, um, and Columbia College and uh, uh, Westminster, and so and a number of junior colleges. Lynn State uh, is the number one small uh, small uh, junior college in the country. So I mean, it's just a it's a it's a very diverse district. Um, stretches from the suburbs, which has got a different set of problems there in St. Charles versus rest of the district, which is fairly rural, got a lot of farming in it, small businesses, small towns. Um, so individual issues, I think, boil down to individual people and individual communities. I mean, I've got some communities as we're going through the process here that had sewer problems. They needed to put new sewer systems, and EPA was going to come in and shut the whole system down for a community. And we have one of them like that. And they came to us and said, hey, we, we can't do this. They're wanting us to spend $13 million on a new sewer system that we just upgraded five years ago for $5 million and haven't got that paid off yet. We need some help. Um, you know, you got, um, uh, <laughs> I mean, I can sit here and start talking all up and down the line. I mean, when you start talking about constituent services, you know, just being able to listen to a veteran. I've got one person, all they do is veterans issues. That's it. Whole, whole job is just taking a veteran. There's that many problems that we deal with every day that would take up her time with regards to veterans issues. We had one guy, when I first got in office, came to him and said, Blaine, 
I've been trying to get my VA disability benefits for the last several years, and they just will not talk to me. They won't take my case up. I said, well, let's take a look at it. And so we did, and we found out that they were, the VA was just dragging their feet. They were one of these passing the paperwork between all the people, get nothing done, and try to drag this guy out because they knew he had a valid claim and going to pay out a really big check to him. And so I said, you know what, enough's enough. And so at the end of the day, he got a $300,000 check from the VA. And that's the kind of stuff that they need to be ready to do, <clears throat> the hard work of taking care of constituents, because if you don't do that, you're not really elected for the right reason. All of the stuff that goes on in Washington um, yeah, it's important, and you need to participate in it, and you need to make sure you do your work there. But if you really want to take care of your district, you want to listen to your constituents and take care of their concerns, because that's why you're there, to be their liaison between their government and themselves. That was Congressman Blaine Luke DeMeyer, who announced he will not be seeking another term this year. You can read all of our coverage of the 2024 election cycle by going to stlpr.org, or by subscribing to Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. Politically Speaking is produced by Sarah Kellogg, Rachel Lipman, and me, Jason Rosenbaum. The show is edited by Fred Ehrlich. Read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking by searching the term Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.